So Jeremiah 32 kind of seems like a puzzling chapter. And it's kind of an interesting, like, what's going on here uh, type of moment. And to set the stage, I thought before we actually go into Jeremiah 32, I kind of want to go back in time and talk about a few things that will help set the stage and set the context for this passage. So hundreds of years before this, there was a man named Abraham. And Abraham, he actually, uh, God came to him one day and said, get up and go to a land that you do not know. And so Abraham did that. He got up and went to a land he did not know. God showed him. And when he got to the land, God met him one day and made a covenant, a solemn promise, and said, I will give this land to you and your, uh, your descendants. Your offspring will inherit this land. And it just so happened that through this man, a whole nation was formed, the nation of Israel. And later on, this nation found themselves in slavery in Egypt. And when they were in slavery in Egypt, God remembered the promises that he had made to Abraham. And with a mighty hand, he delivered them from this slavery. He broke the waters. You probably remember the prince of Egypt, right? Um, he broke the waters, led them through on dry ground. And as he led them through, he brought them into this new land, defeated their enemies all for one point. He wanted to bring them into the promised land, the land that he had promised to Abraham. Last week, if you remember Rod, he talked about how important, even to this day, land is in the Middle East. It's like one of the top three values. There's like faith, there's family, and there's land. And he made it so he would bring them into this land. And as he's bringing them in, it just seems like there's all this momentum, miraculous things happening, providing through the wilderness and bringing them to this land. And then you get to Jeremiah. And after all this momentum rushing in this direction, suddenly it seems like the opposite narrative. All of a sudden, after all this momentum, God is removing them from the land. And it's kind of puzzling. Why would God, after all that work, bringing them in, suddenly be removing them from the land? It seems kind of jarring and confusing. And not only why would he remove them from the land, but another question we've been asking is, how are they supposed to live by faith and hope in this season of exile? What does it look like to have faith and hope in this? And why is he removing them from the land? Or some of the questions we've been wrestling with over the past few weeks. One of the important events that really helps unlock and helps uh, understand the whole book of Jeremiah is what happens just before Jeremiah comes on the scene. Prior to Jeremiah, the temple of the Lord had been closed for 60 years. Basically, nobody was using the temple. And this young king named Josiah comes along, and he decides, I'm going to reopen the temple of our Lord. So they reopen the temple. The priests rush in, they go in, and they find the book of the law. Now think about that, just that phrase. They found the book of the law. After all this time, they find the book of the law. They had to dust it off. Is specifically the book of Deuteronomy. And they're reading through Deuteronomy, and all of a sudden they come to this spot where God says, if the people don't keep the covenant, then he's going to do something. There's going to be a consequence to it. So look at this verse in Deuteronomy. It says, if they don't keep the covenant, the Lord will drive you and the king um, you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. So he says this is going to happen. And Jeremiah, he's reading this in Deuteronomy. And all of a sudden, he realizes, he looks around and realizes, well, okay, the people are not keeping the covenant. 
And then he also realizes that this empire, the Babylonian empire, is invading. And he puts two and two together and realizes what God said is actually happening. And so he starts through the rest of the book of Jeremiah basically preaching that judgment is coming and exile is coming because of the way you're living. And the thing about it is this. When we hear the word judgment, we kind of don't like that word. It kind of has this connotation in our society where it kind of just feels like it almost like makes you think of someone talking down to you or like they're haughty or like just looking down upon you. But that's not at all what Jeremiah is thinking when he actually um, uses the words judgment. For him, judgment is actually a good thing. It's kind of like a thing that God is using to turn things over. His posture is not haughty. It's not actually like, um, you know, looking down on them at all. His posture is actually very different. It's almost like a good shepherd. And so if you read through Jeremiah, Jeremiah 18 has this verse where he describes kind of his thoughts behind uh, judgment. It says, this is God saying, if at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted or torn down and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. So when he talks about judgment, he's actually talking about it as like a good shepherd saying, look, you need to uh, watch out for this. Um, a couple years ago, my brother and I, we were walking out of church and all of a sudden, I, as we're walking out, it's like wintertime, and I see that there's some black ice on the ground. And so I walk around it. Now, my brother's coming behind me, and I say, hey, watch out for the ice. And he goes, okay. I get to the car, and as soon as I get to the car, I just hear behind me this slip and lands on his back. I turn around, and he's still sliding towards me. <laughs> and I'm like, did you not see the, the ice? And he goes... I saw it. Can you help me understand then why are you on the ground sliding towards me? And he's like, well, I saw it, but I still walked across it. And here's the thing is this. You can tell somebody until you're blue in the face that there's something coming, but if they choose to just walk into it anyways, there's not much you can do. And in the same way, Jeremiah is trying to warn the people and say, look, this is what God said will happen if you keep doing this. For him, judgment is just saying this is the consequence that God is saying is going to happen if you continue in this way. And God is a man of his word, so he is going to make this happen if you continue in this direction. But they do not listen. And now judgment is upon them. And now we enter into Jeremiah 32. And if we look at even just that first verse, I mean, it says, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Now that little detail, the 10th year is really important because from history, we know that Zedekiah, who's the last king before captivity, he only reigned 11 years. And so if he reigned 11 years and they're in his 10th year, then that means the captivity, the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem is only maybe months away, maybe a year at most. And that's the setting. They're at the verge of being evicted from their land. And all this is happening. If you read later in the chapter, it actually even says that the Babylonians are sieging the city. They're putting up ramps against it. And like the people are like, you know, this could happen any day, right? The attack could happen any day. And Jeremiah, while all the people are afraid, Jeremiah is in prison. 
Now, if you know anything about Jeremiah, he wasn't really a popular figure, okay? Um, he was unpopular at best. Some of the things he was preaching sounded like treason, right? So it says in verse 3, now Zedekiah, he asks him, why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says. I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he'll capture it. And later he says, like, you won't succeed if you fight against this. And the king's trying to get the people, like, you know, um, to, like, believe in this. And he's saying these different things, so he gets thrown in prison. And now the invasion's coming. The judgment is coming. Now, for me, if I was Jeremiah, and I'm in prison, and I'd been preaching for years that judgment was coming, and no one believed me, and now finally it's here, I feel like I would be slightly tempted to be like, I told you so. I'm just saying, I told you so. Like, I have been preaching this for years, nobody thought it would happen, and now it's here. But that's not what Jeremiah does at all. Jeremiah is not smug or arrogant. There's no haughtiness about him at all. Instead, he's a good shepherd, and he's more interested in saying what God is speaking to the people and what they need to hear in this moment. And so in that, in the midst of prison, in the midst of an invasion, Jeremiah preaches hope. And if you look in the chapter right before this, chapter, or chap, two chapters before, chapter 30, um, it says this, it will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. And another part, he says, I've brought this punishment on you because of your sins, but I'm going to restore you is what God says. And there's a lot of messages of hope. But even though there's so much message of hope, the people are so preoccupied with the dread of fear of either starvation or invasion. They know that right at the wall, the, there's pounding at the gates. And at any moment, they're just kind of on edge. When is it going to happen? When is this invasion going to happen? When are we going to get taken over? Are we going to be separated from our families? And they don't believe the message of hope. And sometimes people need to be shown hope before they're told hope. And so Jeremiah decides, you know what? If they're just thinking these words are flattery, going to do something different. It says in verse 6, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth because it, you're the nearest relative. He's the kinsman redeemer. So it's kind of like, almost like expected that he would do this in times that are not war. And verse uh, 8, it says, then just as the Lord had said, my cousin um, Hanamel would come and say, buy this field. So he hears this, and Hanamel, his cousin, comes to him and offers to sell him this field for 17 shekels. Now, there's part of me that's like, was, was his cousin serious? Like, was he mocking Jeremiah? I mean, it'd kind of be similar to if, like, today I said, you know, I've got a property on Mars, and I'd really like to sell it to you. Probably be like, I don't know if that's so likely. And so he says he's going to do this. And I kind of imagine, would Jeremiah be like, all right, are you serious? You want me to buy a land? Do you, do you realize the land you want to sell me is outside of Jerusalem? So that means it's under enemy occupation right now. Do you think I really want to buy that? Don't try and dump this property on me. I mean, I know I'm a preacher, but I'm not stupid. And he's probably like trying to you know, say that or something is what you'd expect. But Jeremiah doesn't do that. Instead, Jeremiah decides to buy the field. 
he decides to do the unthinkable. And so if you read here in verse 13, it says, in their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, take these documents, both sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase and put them in a clay jar so they'll last a long time. So actually I've got a picture here of the clay jars, because what they would do is when they'd have a deed or some property that was being bought, they would put it in these clay jars so they would last for years and the paper wouldn't erode. And I am thinking about this and I'm like, the witnesses that are watching this transaction happen, they're probably a little confused, like a little puzzled. Why would he do this? Like the land's being taken over. Is it even going to matter whether he has land? Is he ever going to actually see it or step foot on it? Why would he do this? Have you ever been reading like a story of the Bible or like a passage of scripture and you've read it several times and just kind of glossed over it and then one time you're reading it and all of a sudden it just leaps off the page at you and all of a sudden it comes alive. There's a few years back when I was reading this and I read it again, verse 14, take these documents, both sealed and unsealed copies of the deed of purchase and put them in clay jars so they will last a long time For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. And when I read this, I realized that Jeremiah was more convinced of the future reality that God was bringing into being than his current circumstances. They may have looked bleak in the moment, but Jeremiah was looking ahead and seeing what God was bringing about to come in the future. I think that there's so many times where we think that our situation is grim, but we don't realize what God is doing in the moment. And this is why this passage means so much to me, because I remember in 2020, I mean, of all things, like pandemic happened, but I also remember for myself personally, there was a set of circumstances that happened. And I just remember finding myself in a situation where it felt like my community that had worked for years to build had imploded. I felt like the ministry I'd invested in for so long felt like it was losing traction. And so many goals in my life just were falling through. And I found myself bound with anxiety and praying that God would change the situation. And then I looked at this passage and I realized that Jeremiah was not content to just believe God for it, but he actually did something about it. There was action associated with it. And I think that it's action that gives hope back its teeth. It's action that when we participate in the prayers that we pray and decide to actually align our lives with what we're believing, that there's change that happens. And so Jeremiah does this. And this must have looked foolish at the time. People must have thought, why would he do this? He's probably never going to see it. And it could be a huge embarrassment for him. There's actually a quote by Eugene Peterson that I love that talks about this passage. And it says, all acts of hope expose themselves to ridicule because they seem impractical. Hope-determined actions participate in the future God is bringing into being. It's not easy to hope because the immediate evidence is often against it. So I can kind of relate to Jeremiah on this because he was having to buy a property and he couldn't see it. I actually um, moved this weekend. 
Um, me and uh, my fiance Montana, we've been we've been looking for a place uh, to live. We're we're getting married in a few weeks, um, and so yeah, <laughs> thanks. <laughs> um, and um, so one of the things with it is when we were looking for property or like places to live. We came to this one apartment complex, and they told us that they had a unit. And we're like, yes, that's awesome. Can we see it? And they said, no. I was like, oh. And so we can't see it. What are we going to do? And, um, and so we decided to drive over to the place. They said they didn't have a model unit or anything, so we were just like, okay, uh, what do we do? And so we drive over to the place, and they're, um, we're just going to look at the outside and see what it looks like. And when we get there, there's somebody walking, and we decided to just drive by, and it just so happened that the person walking by was somebody who goes to our young adult gathering. And they were telling us about the place and said, hey, you know, if you ever want to see it, you can come over and see it. And we're like, well, that's perfect. And so um, we uh, made a schedule of the time, and they showed us the place. And if nothing else, what it did is it relieved a little bit of, like, what's it going to be like? And I'm probably not alone in this. A lot of times I think that there's times where we're making a decision or stepping into something and we'd like to see everything or experience everything before. And I think while it's, it's wise to do that in a lot of situations, the reality in life is you can't do that with everything. Not everything are you going to know how it's all going to turn out, right? There's sometimes where like, you know, with properties or with cars or different things, we want to do that. Or there's bigger things where like with jobs or relationships, you want to see every or like experience all these things and know as much as you can before stepping into it. But the reality is you just can't in everything. There's sometimes we want to take all the risk out of stuff before you take a single step. I think these are some of the reasons why it makes it hard to step into having hope and to buying hope. Some of the other reasons I think is when God's calling us to do something, sometimes we don't think it's going to cost us anything. This costs Jeremiah something. When God calls people to do missions work or to do evangelism or reach their neighbors, it costs sometimes. And sometimes it goes through our head like, well, if Jesus paid it all, do it, does it have to cost me anything? Does it really demand risk? We're called to walk just as Jesus walked and to live like he did. Another reason that I think that sometimes makes it hard to buy hope and to take these steps of hope is because we feel like our lives are under siege. There's sometimes where it could be like marriage feels like it's under siege, or maybe there's someone that's a family member or a uh, friend that has just canceled you and cut off communication. It just feels like your life is under siege. And I don't know what it's like for you through your work week. Maybe sometimes at work it feels like you're under siege or there's stress. What does it look like when you're under siege, when it costs you something and you can't see what it's going to look like, when you can't see all the outcomes? What do you do? We can do just what Jeremiah did. Even though he purchased the deed, he still needed some assurance. And so instead of just you know, talking to everybody around him, he decided to turn back to the source of his hope. And if you look at verse 16 here, it says this, after I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord. He prayed. And what I love about the book of Jeremiah is every time he prays, God answers. So verse 17 says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And then if you skip down 10 verses, um, God answers in verse 18, or sorry, 27. 
and says this, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? So he, he says, is anything too hard for you? And then 10 verses later, God says, is there anything too hard for me? Same phrase. Anybody, we have any movie fans in the, the room? Anybody like film or movie? Okay. So one of the ways that me and my brothers communicate with each other is we, um, we talk in quotes, okay, movie quotes, okay? And so sometimes what happens is we'll be together and there'll be other people around us that don't know movie quotes as well, and we'll say something. And it just sounds like a random phrase, but not to us. We know exactly where it's from. And all of a sudden, we quote the, the next line in the movie right back. And we know the situation, the characters involved. Some people probably do this. I, I'm just curious if you'd humor me. I'm just curious if anybody has any favorite movie quotes. And you can just shout them out. But any favorite movie quotes? What was it? You had me at hello? I like that one. Is that, that's with Tom Cruise, right? Yeah, okay. Anybody else got a quote? <laughs> These are good. Anybody else got some quotes? Oh, somebody. So you're saying there's a chance. Uh, what's the other? <laughs> other quotes. <laughs> there's one over here too. The makings. Of, thank you. Um, um, and you know, if I said like, no. I am your father, right? If you say that, or like if I said, it's not a movie, but if I said I have a dream, um, well, Martin Luther King, right? You know, there's all these different quotes. And actually, one of the things is this. It's not just with my brothers, but sometimes when I have my, my uh, nieces and nephews around, I... Um, like sometimes these quotes come out. And so one time around Christmas, we had all the nieces and nephews. I got like 12 of them now. We're all just wrestling around. And one time I just grabbed a plastic sword, put it up to my niece's neck. And I said, I, I, sorry, it just happens. Okay. And I just blurted out, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. And, you know, it just comes out. And in the same way, that when I say these quotes, or when you hear movie quotes, you know exactly where they're from. The original audience, when they heard this passage, when they heard Jeremiah say, there's nothing too hard for you, and God respond and say, is there anything too hard for me? They knew exactly where he was quoting from. Because way back at the whole start of this Jewish story, of this, um, this narrative, this epic narrative, there was a childless man who was almost 100 years old named Abraham. And God came to him one day and said, you are going to have a son. It's going to happen. By this time next year, you are going to have a son. And his wife heard this. And she's pushing 90. And so she's like, excuse me? Like, like, and so she laughs. She just bursts out with laughter. God hears it in the distance. And he says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And Sarah peeks her head around the corner and says, I didn't laugh. And God says, oh, no, you laugh. And I am the Lord. Is there anything too hard for me? And so they heard this, 
And they knew exactly what Jeremiah was doing because he was bringing back this story of what God said and did in Abraham's life. And he's saying in the same way that God was with Abraham and Sarah in their moment of trouble, he is the same God that will be with us in our moments of trouble. And that God back then will bring uh, life into this moment as well. And it may look bleak. It looked bleak for them too. But God is in this moment and he can bring restoration out of anything because he's a great God. And I think that when he saw this, Jeremiah may have not realized all the implications of what he was doing, but faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things unseen. And this mundane act of buying a field is what made the hope of God visible to the people around him. He was living as though the future already existed. It was happening in his moment. And I think when we, when you and I make choices that align with the hope that we claim to have is what makes the hope of God, it's what makes the invisible hope of God visible to this world. And just the opposite is true, too, because when we decide not to live in accordance and not to live the life that shows the hope that we have, it actually makes the kingdom of God appear as nothing more than wishful thinking. And what I love about this church is ever since I've came, I've just heard story after story after story of the kingdom of God breaking out and people buying into hope. I mean, every Tuesday morning, there's people that come and serve our neighbors, there's foster and adoptive ministries that are happening and people buying into hope. I heard a story of a, a house church that heard of um, a, mo- a single mom that needed help and assistance. And so they came and brought food uh, and groceries to her. I also, the other night, we had a really good time at our young adults group and we had an open mic. And people just came up and shared testimony after testimony. I really wasn't sure how long it was going to go, but it lasted over an hour. And I heard there was somebody that told a story about how for them, what buying into hope looked like was they put a stake in the ground and they had been free from pornography addiction for 150 days. There was another person who said that they, um, for them, they hadn't been to church since they were a teenager and now they were coming back. And for me, just hearing these stories of people taking steps of saying, I'm buying the hope, even though my life feels like it's under siege sometimes, I'm buying into this hope. And the invitation is to be like Abraham, to live like Abraham lived, to live like Jeremiah lived, and to live like Jesus lived. Because Jesus, when he came, when our world was under the siege of death and sin, he paid a high cost. He paid a high price and gave his life to buy us when we were under enemy occupation and gave his life for us to redeem us. And if he could do that and calls us to live the same life, what would it look like, even if your life is under siege, to buy into hope, to take steps of faith, And not just one of us, but what if all of us did it and it was a church that just stepped into that and embodied the kingdom of God? God, I just, when I think of this passage, there's so many times where it's just so easy to gloss over something. But God, I just, I appreciate and I'm thankful for Jeremiah's life and what he did, the choices he made May we be a people that do the same. And God, would we resolve to pray no prayer that we're not going to also participate in, that we would step into the prayers we pray and align our actions 
with the hope we claim to have. God, I just, I pray that we would have not just words, but we would show hope by the way we live and demonstrate it. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.